This is a recording of Wither Mormon Studies by John Gee, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 85 through 122. Read by Scott Dunaway. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. In my lifetime, Mormonism has gone from mostly under the radar of religious studies to the point where there are now academic programs in Mormon studies. Whether this is a good development can at least be debated. As the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship has suspended the Mormon Studies Review, it is worth looking at some lingering questions in the field of Mormon Studies. There are some questions about the field that have not been satisfactorily answered, nor are they necessarily answered here, but they need to be considered lest Mormon Studies become seen by Latter-day Saints as simply another dash of the gathering swine. As a partial foil for my discussion, I would like to use an unappreciated pioneer in Mormon studies, the late British Shakespearean scholar Arthur Henry King, who was widely read and widely traveled and already had a distinguished academic career before he encountered the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the very end of his academic career, he produced a thoughtful work of Mormon studies that, has, that was part analysis and part critique. The critique has, was aimed at members of the Church who substituted their own naive presuppositions, culture, politics, or ethnicity, for the Gospel, and did not consider their actions in the light of what the Scriptures taught. Is there any discipline in Mormon studies? When Arthur Henry King taught Shakespeare, he would begin his upper division classes by announcing that he was not going to require the class to write an essay on Shakespeare, since none of them was competent to do so. Instead, he would teach them a method that, if pursued for twenty years, might equip them with such competence. The English majors were instantly offended at his suggestion that they did not know enough to write an essay on Shakespeare. But he was absolutely right. His disciplined method required the scansion of every line and the analysis of every word in the context of the play, in the context of Shakespeare's usage, and in other usage in Shakespeare's day. It involved asking moral questions of the material, such as, Is there any love in this play? Who is posturing in this play and why? This is an admired speech, but is it a good one? Is the sentiment expressed by this character moral? If this character were to give a Christian response here, what would it be? What does this character need to repent of? Does he or she need to repent? His method required a reflexive critique on whether interpretations were 1. actually preferable, 2. just probable, 3. merely possible, or 4. simply impossible. King was as demanding of himself as he was of his students. He would stand up and walk out of a play if the director carelessly omitted Marcellus's speech in the first scene of Hamlet, which he thought was the highlight of the play, or butchered the tempest by substituting Prosper's nihilistic speech, which he must repent of, for his repentance at the end. 
Students who entered King's office would find his packed bookshelves filled with little else than three-inch thick binders filled with his notes on every Shakespearean play. Observant students could tell that he had practiced his own method for many years and was teaching from personal experience and personal discipline. His method described a discipline for studying Shakespeare that can be profitably applied to other fields. Many areas of study require the mastery of languages, or mathematics, or some other demanding base, without which one cannot even begin to work comp competently in the field. A physicist cannot begin to probe the mysteries of quantum mechanics without the calculus, even though mathematics is not his area of interest. A student of the Old Testament requires not just Hebrew, but also German in order to interact with the technical literature of his field though his interest is hardly focused on modern European languages. While it is clear that many who ride on Mormon studies are not competent to do so, the cause of this problem has been often overlooked. Tellingly, Mormon studies seems to lack the disciplinary, quote, prerequisites, end quote, which other fields demand. The original documents are mostly in English and easily read by any literate layperson, which means that the would-be author faces few bars to entry. If the ability to read English and talk to a few Mormons are the only requirements, why pretend that the quality of most work in Mormon studies reflects the standards of an academic discipline, such as peer review, graduate school apprenticeship, and a necessary command of the relevant literature? To produce work worthy of serious interest, Mormon studies may need a discipline that, after twenty years of experience, might produce something worthy of consideration. Discipline requires, quote, a certain amount of grind and insistence on detail and accuracy, end quote. Without discipline, we end up with what King called, quote, higher illiteracy, end quote, which he said comes, quote, partly because during the years of our schooling we have not been submitted to any unremitting disciplinary training in the use of language, end quote. It is that lack of discipline and the rigorous training that might supply it that often leads individuals to use sloppy and ill-thought-out categories such as, quote, mysticism, theology, and objectivity, end quote, when talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. King was blunt and forthright in academic matters. He was not interested in, quote, Mormon nice, end quote. Nice, after all, comes from the Latin necius, Quote, ignorant, end quote, and originally meant, quote, foolish, stupid, senseless, end quote. Nice is how one treats people when one does not know any better. While it is often a good thing for Latter-day Saints to ignore the learning of the world, such can afford to be nice, Latter-day Saints who wish to engage in Mormon studies cannot afford to be nice if this means ignoring sloppy work, immature thinking, or a lack of grounding in the relevant fundamentals. Christ's command was not merely to be as harmless as, as doves, but to be wise as serpents. Most of those who have excelled at Mormon studies come from other disciplines, and have excelled because they apply their discipline to their Mormon subject. They are careful thinkers. They also love their subject and are excited about it, not because they think it is somehow strange, but because they think it is wonderful. 
Good entomologists, for example, do not think that insects are weird or strange or some academic curiosity. They are passionate advocates of their subject. They are not trying to kill off the species they study. It is precisely their passion for their study that compels them to bring their best to their study. They do not affect dis disinterest. Disinterested people are incapable of research, since research requires an interest in the topic of research. Disinterested people write write trite drivel. Disinterested speakers are boring. Students hate disinterested professors. They prefer enthusiastic ones. And we should remember that enthusiasm comes from a Greek term meaning, quote, to be inspired or possessed by a god, end quote. We do not want disinterested observers of Latter-day Saints because disinterested people do not care. Why would someone want to affect or feign disinterestedness in his or her topic? From the point of view of the saints, Mormon studies should not pretend to be learning for learning's sake. As Queen wrote, quote, For us, all learning is for God's sake, not for its own sake. As soon as we speak of learning for its own sake, we set up learning as an idol independent of God. The Mormon tradition is supremely one of work, work for the Lord and others, service. Work is the second great virtue. Caring or love is the first and work should spring from caring. The object of a Mormon university must be to build the kingdom of God, to serve in the church in the full sense of what that implies. Because we believe in the church, because we believe it to be the most important organization on this earth, because we believe it to be the instrument of God's will, because we believe Christ is its head, we must therefore believe that any organization that the church sets up must finally and ultimately serve the church." End quote. Does a specialist in Mormon studies necessarily know what is going on in the church? We cannot presume that someone professing to do Mormon studies is necessarily a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we have the right to expect him or her to know something about the church. That is, after all, supposedly his or her area of expertise. In reality, though, that area of expertise can be overstated. A scholar of Mormon studies might have broad interest in the church and some knowledge about the church, but expertise will generally be in a more narrow range, such as church history in the Nauvoo period, or Mormons in the southeastern United States in the late 19th century, for example. A potential problem then appears when outside observers, such as the media, turn to a scholar focused on some narrow aspect of Mormon studies and mistakenly conclude that the scholar is some sort of authority on the church in all its dimensions. A biochemist specializing in DNA would not be consulted about transition metal chemistry simply because he is a, quote, chemist, end quote. But scholars of Mormonism are often asked to comment on matters equally far from their area of expertise. More troubling, neither they nor their audience seem to realize they are doing so. Jan Ships was a well-known example of this phenomenon. Ships was constantly consulted by the media for her opinions about what was going on in the church, though some of the saints could be forgiven for wondering from her statement, statements excerpted in the media how informed she was. Ship recalls that her first exposure to the church was when she moved to Logan, Utah, for a year. Most of the people that she associated with, quote, did not fit into the active Mormon category, end quote, and most of what she learned about Latter-day Saints was over alcohol. She recalls that, quote, we never attended a sacrament meeting, end quote. 
She then moved to Colorado, where she did graduate work on Mormonism, all while trying, quote, to avoid being pulled one way or the other, end quote. In the early 70s, she finally entered what she considered the real, quote, Mormon community, end quote, which was, quote, the community of Mormon intellectuals then gathering around Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, end quote. She herself admits that, quote, this loosely organized community stood in sharp contrast to the ever more rigidly organized and strictly regulated religious body to which the great majority of intellectuals belonged and in which many were active participants. End quote. In other words, she has only had limited contact with what goes on in the church, and her principal informants have been those on the fringes. While outsiders can, and sometimes do, have important insights into the Latter-day Saint experience, insiders know that outsiders' understanding is incomplete, and they often fail to grasp basic, fundamental, even obvious facets from their outside position. This dynamic can make them unreliable sources of information for those who actually want to understand the Church better. Why does this problem arise? In the first place, most scholars of Mormonism are in a very poor position to understand what is going on in the Church simply because of its sheer size and extent. In 2009, the Church had 2,865 stakes with 28,424 wards and branches in over 150 countries. Assume for the moment that a scholar of Mormonism has 20 friends in different stakes around the Church reporting to her what is going on in their wards and stakes an overly optimistic estimate, perhaps a couple of times a year. A stake president will have, on average, about ten units reporting to him. Additionally, most Sundays he will be visiting one or two of those wards in person. Every month he will be interviewing the bishops. At least three or four times a month, sometimes three or four times a week, he will be interviewing various members of the stake to issue callings, to issue temple recommends, to counsel those with problems, and to deal with the wayward. Additionally, nearly every week a stake president, or a bishop for that matter, will receive a packet in the mail from church headquarters, informing him about minor policy changes and upcoming things of which he should be aware. A stake president, therefore, is better informed about what is going on in the church than a typical scholar of Mormonism, albeit often for a more restricted geographical area. This is not to say that the media ought to go to stake presidents for information. The stake president would likely send a reporter to the local public affairs representative. But a stake president is more likely to be informed about what is going on in the church than someone whose primary source of information consists of those Latter-day Saints who frequent cocktail parties. If one wants to understand what is going on in the current church, however, one needs to have a larger picture than even a stake president can provide. A member of the Quorum of the Seventy in an area presidency will have responsibility for an average of about 90 to 100 stakes consisting of 900 to 1,000 wards. An apostle will have an average of 686 stakes and 6,869 wards reporting to him. The apostles as a group also receive reports from each of the area presidencies at least a couple of times a year. Furthermore, these brethren will spend about 40 weeks a year on assignment visiting Latter-day Saints worldwide, with the scho- which the scholar will not. 
This is not to say that either the media or scholars of Mormon studies should waste the time of general authorities with routine media queries. Church public affairs is established to interact with the media. So while someone who does Mormon studies may be an expert in his or her particular niche, he or she will be in less of a position to say what is generally happening church-wide than a typical general authority. What will a student learn in a Mormon studies program? Most, quote, studies, end quote, programs are interdisciplinary, with a number of different faculty in different departments specializing in where the subject of the, quote, studies, end quote, program intersects with the discipline. For example, history, theology, philosophy, sociology, anthropology, archaeology, languages, political science, literature, and so forth. Outside of Brigham Young University, Brigham Young University Hawaii, and Brigham Young University Idaho, no university has more than a single chair in Mormon studies. This lack of a broad inter interdisciplinary approach means that other universities cannot really have an effective program, and students who study in such places are unlikely to get a well-rounded education in the topic. Instead, in the classroom they will be instructed in the eccentricities of their particular professor. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a worldwide church with more members living outside the United States than inside the United States, yet Mormon studies has generally been focused on the United States. Will Mormon studies programs based exclusively in the United States deal with the worldwide church, or will they only focus on the church in the United States? Can one specialist really be expected to cover more than a fraction of the territory? What students in a Mormon studies program learn is greatly influenced by their professor. What, then, will students be learning? Quote, Generally, course and faculty-student interface are needed for the development of skills, the inculcation of the method, the application of principle, the acquiring of attitude, to show how learning is organized, how it can be stimulated, and lead to discussion, not for information that students could be getting by reading." End quote. The character of the professor assumes a crucial role here. What core areas of knowledge should a specialist in Mormon studies have? While someone in Mormon studies may have a specialist niche, there should be some standard core knowledge that a specialist in Mormon studies ought to, be, ought to be expected to have. An analogy from another discipline might be appropriate here. While Egyptology covers thousands of years and every facet of that civilization, and Egyptologists necessarily specialize, there is a core of knowledge that comes as, par, uh, as part of their training that, that can all be expected to have. There are texts that all are expected to have read, and minimal competencies that all are expected to have achieved before proceeding to their specialties. Likewise, those involved in Mormon studies should share a standard core of texts and a standard core of basic knowledge. While there will be some debate regarding all the texts and knowledge that a scholar of Mormon studies should have, I will here suggest a bare minimum. A scholar of Mormon studies worthy of the title should at a bare minimum have carefully read all of the standard works of the Church, the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Some reasons for this are obvious. 
As the canon of the Church, these are the core texts throughout the Church that all members are encouraged to study. It is only to be expected that members and scholars should be familiar with them. Latter-day Saint writing and talks are peppered with quotations from and allusions to these books of Scripture, over a hundred thousand of them in the last sixty or so years of General Conference alone. One cannot presume to write intelligently about Latter-day Saints without an innate and intimate grasp of this core intellectual background. It should likewise be expected that anyone who wishes to write knowledgeably about Latter-day Saints should know the basics of Latter-day Saint belief. This belief would include the gospel, that is, faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, gap, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. Those basics can be found in the lessons taught to investigators and new members. That is what the Church expects its members to believe and commit to. Thus, those who do not belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but wish to participate intelligently in Mormon studies, would do well to familiarize themselves with the third chapter of Preach My Gospel, the Church's Guide for Missionary Work. This chapter covers the basics of Latter-day Saint beliefs and tenets. The guide is available in 43 languages, all of which are available for free on the Internet, so there is no excuse for not knowing the material. One would also expect those doing Mormon studies would have some idea of what a church meeting was like. One would think that they should have at least attended a sacrament meeting, a fast and testimony meeting, and a session of general conference. I deliberately exclude familiarity with temple ordinances because not all Latter-day Saints have yet experienced the temple. But beyond these recommendations, one would expect a knowledge of the general outlines of LDS Church history, if for no other reason than to help them navigate more specialist discussions. Doubtless there is more that should be included. The exact core competencies can be debated, but I have a hard time imagining how someone could even claim the sort of competence in Mormon studies necessary to publish without this bare minimum. Will students of a specialist in Mormon studies necessarily know even the basics about the Church? One of the most disappointing things about reading accounts of the Latter-day Saints by outsiders is the persistent failure to get even basic information correct. In 2009, the Church had 51,736 missionaries who baptized 280,106 converts for an average of over 10 and 3 quarter converts per missionary companionship. This does not include all the investigators who did not end up being baptized, but is limited to those people who were taught well enough that the individual could pass a baptismal recommend interview, which means that the person understood the basics of the church. Is it plausible that any professor of Mormon studies is going to get ten of his students a year able to answer all those questions satisfactorily? Students in a Mormon studies program should not be required to convert but they should be familiar with the basics, which is what the missionaries teach. A Mormon studies instructor who fails to help his students understand the basics has failed his students. This is not to say that missionaries are particularly gifted teachers. Their training and teaching is rather minimal. For all of its brevity, however, it is more extensive than the amount of pedagogical training necessary to receive a Ph.D. So a Mormon studies graduate is likely to be no better informed about the church in general than a stake president, and no better a teacher than a missionary. A scholar can be an expert in particular without being an authority in general. 
A scholar might, for example, be an expert in a comparatively specialized subject and might be the most knowledgeable person in the church in that particular area. This specialized expertise has to be the strength of those involved in Mormon studies. What is the purpose of Mormon studies? For years we have had individuals with specialist knowledge without programs and positions in Mormon studies. Their existence does not require or even argue for a need for such programs. Since the purpose of Mormon studies is the key question, and one which I will not presume to answer at this time, I suggest that the answer might depend on the position of the individual to whom the question is put. The purpose of Mormon studies may mean one thing to the professor of Mormon studies, another to the student, something else to the donor who has put, put up money for the professor's position, something different to the member of the church, and yet something different to a leader of the church. As in the rest of academia, a potential problem for the professor of Mormon studies is simply the inevitable pressure to publish, perhaps before the professor has anything to say. Like Jan Shipps, Arthur Henry King encountered the church in the 1960s, but, unlike Shipps, King did not pretend or presume to be neutral, but rather joined the church. Already an academic by training and sometime professor at Cambridge, King joined the faculty at Brigham Young University as a professor of English and taught English, particularly Shakespeare. He published very little. After some twenty years among the Latter-day Saints, however, he produced a book which he began by admitting, quote, I am new to the church, and I wondered, therefore, what I could say from inside it that could interest you, or indeed be knowledgeable. I have come in late, but I am addressing people who here who have always been in the church, or perhaps came to it early. End quote. Yet his relatively new, relative newsness to the church notwithstanding, he wrote a work which remains one of the most original and insightful books in Mormon studies, because of his careful and thoughtful engagement with the subject. I doubt that he would have produced anything so profound had he rushed into print to satisfy the timetable of a tenure committee. If a professor has perhaps not matured enough to produce something profound, it is even more unlikely that a graduate student who is not a member of the church would have anything useful to say. Would a graduate student who has spent 45 hours in a semester-long class on Mormonism really have the hubris to think he would have anything worthwhile to tell the typical church member who spends at least 150 hours a year in church meetings alone to say nothing of the countless hours outside the Sunday block? These are people who have covenanted with God and given their lives to Him through His church. They are citizens and inhabitants of the kingdom of God, not tourists. They may not be specialists, and they do not know everything, but they know from personal experience and devoted time how the church works and what LDS life is like. A professor, furthermore, might take a different attitude towards his subject. Some caught in the publisher parish trap might decide to pump forth whatever bilge they think they need to placate a tenure committee, probably staffed by secular religious studies scholars. For others, their professorship might serve as an opportunity to demonstrate their erudition or cleverness. While Latter-day Saints may put up the money to fund chairs in Mormon studies, religious studies scholars are the ones who will determine the rank advancement of those who hold university chairs in Mormon studies and who will determine who will be hired. Thus, the interests of Mormon studies chairs will not necessarily align with the desires of Latter-day Saints. 
This has been less of a concern in the past when those hired for Mormon Studies chairs were established for scholars, such as Richard Bushman, who already had established track records for competence. Any younger, non-tenured scholar will have to make his or her work in Mormon Studies please the senior scholars in Religious Studies who hold the key to his or her rank advancement and tenure. Will work in Mormon Studies conform to the expectations of the Religious Studies departments? Will it serve the academy and not the kingdom? There are times when it might serve both, but there are also might be times when one simply cannot serve two masters and thus must choose whom one will serve. Quote, it is the tradition of the academic that he should be a self-regarder, a self-lover, an exhibitionist, a narcissist, one who postures and clowns for educational purposes. End quote. Arthur Henry King noted, quote, I have been, been a member of several universities, and I have visited some 200, and I can assure you that the outstanding feature of the faculty of universities is an extraordinary immaturity, which springs from self-regard, the praise given by others, arrogance, the belief in one's own powers, any of these things will bring it about. It is more difficult to grow up when one is clever." End quote. There is, however, a more excellent way. As Arthur Henry King taught, quote, When we have laid down at Christ's feet all our scholarship, all our learning, all the tools of our trades, we discover that we may pick them up all again, clean them, adjust them, and use them for the church in the name of Christ and in the light of his countenance. We do not need to discard them. All we need to do is to use them from the faith which now possesses us, and we find that we can, end quote. Otherwise, as Hugh Nibley warned, for those who do not defend the kingdom of God, their, quote, whole career will become one long face-saving operation at the expense of the church, end quote. Lehi's and Nephi's visions of the tree of life are relevant here. Lehi describes, quote, a great and spacious building filled with people both old and young, both male and female, in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. End quote. First Nephi chapter eight verses twenty six to twenty seven. An angel explains to Nephi that the building represents quote, the world and the wisdom thereof. End quote. First Nephi chapter eleven verse thirty five. Nephi somberly explains that, quote, as many as heeded them had fallen away, end quote. 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 34. For Latter-day Saints, who generally already know their faith much better than outsiders ever will, one important purpose for Mormon studies is to provide believers with insight. Arthur Henry King liked to quote from T.S. Eliot, quote, We shall not cease from exploration and at the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. End quote. A good work in Mormon studies will make the Latter-day Saint who already knows the subject feel as though he or she is encountering the subject for the first time. It will add fresh insight and be edifying. Are scholars of Mormon studies necessarily the best at interpreting what is going on in the church? If the purpose of Mormon studies is to be insightful and edifying, we might wonder how insightful scholars of Mormon studies actually are. I was struck by the perspicacity of one member of the church with whom I attended the October 1999 priesthood session of General Conference. 
After the meeting, he announced that the church was going to sell ZCMI, which the church did a month and a half later. He had correctly read between the lines when the following passage was delivered over the pulpit. Quote, now the next question. Why is the church in business? We have a few business interests, not many. Most of those were begun in the very early days when the church was the only organization that could provide the capital that was needed to start certain business interests designed to serve the people in this remote area. We have divested ourselves long since of some of these where it was felt there was no longer a need. Included in these divestitures, for instance, was the old consolidated wagon and machine company, which did well in the days of wagons and horse-drawn farm machinery. The company outlived its usefulness. The church sold the banks which it once held. A good banking, as good banking services developed in the community where there was no longer any need for church-owned banks. End quote. Granted the man who drew the conclusion was, and is, more astute than most, the correct conclusion drawn at the time is not necessarily straightforward, even in retrospect. Are those who do Mormon studies so astute? They may not necessarily be. Looking back at various interpretations made by certain intellectuals doing Mormon studies regarding events and trends happening in the church, one gets the distinct impression that they misunderstood them. This is not to say that all intellectuals, or even all Mormon intellectuals, are clueless. Most of the time, those in Mormon studies have the good sense not to claim to be prophets, but they have on occasion presumed as much. If Latter-day Saints are going to find something insightful and edifying in Mormon studies, some facets of the field are going to need to change. What sort of topics should be covered by Mormon studies? For some, Mormon studies is synonymous with Mormon history. While history is an important component of Mormon studies, the field itself cannot be reduced to history. By its designation, Mormon studies models itself on the broader discipline of religious studies. The chairs in Mormon studies have, so far, been in religious studies departments, not history departments. Church members excited over the prospect of Mormon studies may not be as excited over the topics that religious studies as a larger discipline prefers to address. One could consider the list of Mormon studies topics presented over the past few years at the annual meetings of the American Academy of Religion, perhaps the premier outlet for religious studies in the United States. It is indicative of the type of topics that one can expect to emerge out of a Mormon studies program. Latter-day Saints will find among the topics the innocuous to the noxious. If anything, it shows the type of work that is promoted under the rubric of Mormon studies. As might be expected in religious studies, there is a tremendous interest in interreligious dialogues and comparisons across different religions. Because religious studies, like many, quote, studies, end quote, fields, tends to use a postmodern lens, which sees religion as a means to seize or maintain power, religion as politics by other means, there is a concentrated focus on politics. The danger of such a position is that one might come to view the church as merely a human institution that can or should be politically manipulated. It seems to me that those who take this position have grossly misunderstood the church. Like most, quote, studies, end quote, fields, Religious studies is also fixated on the issues of race and gender, particularly on sexual orientation and, from certain perspectives, deviant sexual behaviors. 
It is unsurprising, then, that some think Mormon studies should be no exception. Those involved, involved in Mormon studies have also been interested in Latter-day Saint arts. Pilgrimage seems to be another popular topic. There are other topics, but their rarity makes them almost appear as though they were aberrations. Treatments of Latter-day Saint scriptures do appear, but are fairly rare, and usually deal with what someone said about a text, rather than the text itself. This is not to say that all these topics are illegitimate, or non-academic, or uninteresting, although some of them might be some of those things. However, the vast majority of these studies are far removed from the basic issues that most Latter-day Saints deal with on a daily basis. Too many of them qualify as higher illiteracy. They are not things that Latter-day Saints will find insightful or edifying. They are an imposition of the interests of outsiders on the Latter-day Saints. They generally deal with isolated instances or marginal phenomena. None of them deal with the gospel. None of them deal with the central issues of the kingdom of God. Few of them appear to help the kingdom. At best, they are neutral toward its progress, and at worst, they are sometimes overtly hostile. They are distractions from what we are supposed to be doing as a church and as a people. Quote, Our task is not to accept agnostic literature. End quote. That is, for Latter-day Saints, the danger of Mormon studies. We can expect that as younger scholars in Mormon studies try to produce work respected by the academy at large, more of the sort of drivel that is at best of marginal interest to the saints will be produced in the name of satisfying whatever prevailing fad possesses the academy. King writes, quote, We do not need to catch up with the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we are the Lord's, we are not of this world. If we fulfill prophecy, it will not be by imitating other universities, but by taking note of what they do and, in the light of darkness, of that, working out our own path. That path should ultimately be traced for us by inspiration and revelation, but it will not be traced for us at all unless we use ourselves to the maximum in the magnificent possibilities that are given us here. We are obligated, each of us, to make the best of ourselves in order that we may do the best for Christ, and this is as true for our intellectual work as of all other kinds of work that we have to do." Not all of the presentations at the American Academy of Religion meetings were by members of the Church. Some were by disaffected Latter-day Saints, some by those who have left the Church, some by anti-Mormons who have never been members, some simply by professors who think they know more about the Church than they actually do. We can expect more of these in the future. After all, quote, to attack religion is the one safe course for the ambitious intellectual. This marks him as a great thinker, and above all saves him from being called to account, for if he is too closely questioned or criticized, he can always play the martyred liberal. End quote. It is even likely that a graduate student will train to become a secular academic species of professional anti Mormon. Indeed, I know of at least four who are. Ironically, he or she may do so in a Mormon studies program funded by members of the Church who could conceive of nothing ill coming out of it. We should expect more of things like the program, quote, 
What the Study of Mormonism Brings to Religious Studies, a special AAR session organized on the occasion of the bicentennial of Joseph Smith's birth, end quote, which was presented at the 2005 American Academy of Religion meetings in Philadelphia. At that session, one scholar announced that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had no interest in being perceived as Christian until the year 2000. The Latter-day Saints in the audience, who made up probably between one and two-thirds of the assembled, may have been wondering where this person had been, since the subject has been has made periodic appearances in general conference from as early as 1962. One after the other speakers prefaced their pre prepared remarks with the comment, quote, I do not really know anything about Mormons, but, end quote. The pace de resistance of the entire meeting was the observation by a distinguished Old Testament scholar based on an examination of three pages literally at random from the Book of Mormon that the Book of Mormon made no use of the Old Testament. With such truly incredible conclusions, one wonders how much more he could have embarrassed himself in front of such an audience, at least a third of whom recognized that the emperor had no clothes. One who wonders what sort of lack of study of Mormonism continues to occur in religious studies. Not all presentations on Latter-day Saints and such programs are so blithely ignorant of the object of their study, but too many are. This is not a situation which would occur, much less be tolerated, in virtually any other discipline. Is Mormon Studies Reductionist? In the session devoted to, quote, what the study of Mormonism brings to religious studies, end quote, was notable for another omission. There was no mention of one of the especially distinctive features of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When Joseph Smith went to Washington, D.C. in December 1839 to petition redress of the, for the robbery, vandalism, and, and deprivation of the rights associated with the Missouri persecutions, the President of the United States, Martin Van Buren, asked him, quote, Wherein we differed in our religion from the other religions of the day. Brother Joseph said we differed in mode of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. We considered that all other considerations were contained in the gift of the Holy Ghost. End quote. The presence, influence, and inspiration of the Holy Ghost is still seen as a driving force among the Latter day Saints. One Sunday a month, the bulk of the time in the principal worship service is devoted to members, as prompted by the Holy Spirit, telling of the influence that the Spirit has had in their lives and of the mighty acts of God they have witnessed. A section of the church of, Church's official magazine for adults is devoted to the same thing. Much of what has been done in the name of Mormon studies omits this distinctive characteristic. For some topics and discussions, it may not be necessary or appropriate, and some who do Mormon studies may not believe a word of it, but to wholly omit it from consideration is to falsify the account of the experience of Latter-day Saints. It cannot be a true account. It reduces the faith of the saints to something much less. It is though one were to stage Shakespeare's Tempest without Prospero or Ariel. As has happened in other religious studies subdisciplines, Mormon studies might try to describe something, and the Latter-day Saints might find their faith, quote, not only well described, but also explained, that is, explained away into political, historical, or literary factors, end quote. Work in Mormon studies that neglects the influence of God in the experience of the Latter-day Saints risks being reductionist in the worst sense of the word. 
Latter-day Saints who engage in such work might wonder how their work fits in with Doctrine and Covenants, section 59, verse 21. Those who are not Latter-day Saints, who, who, or who are merely, quote, cultural Mormons, end quote, should realize that their reductionist work will be viewed by the Saints as flawed, at best as not fully accurate, and at worst as fundamentally fallacious, if not intentionally misleading. Those who take a reductionist approach, Nib Nibley noted, do not take kindly to those who suggest there is something more, or who, tr who try to correct their errors. They, quote, promptly sound the alarm and attack them as fanatics and troublemakers, end quote. The current straw man term for opprobrium, of opprobrium is apologist, ironically employed by individuals vigorously and vociferously defending their own position, that is, acting as apologists themselves. The entire scholarly enterprise is scarcely anything but apologetics, the defense or advocacy of a position through reason, evidence, and the marshalling of argument. Is there a political program to Mormon studies? Many academic fields that end in, quote, studies, end quote, are viewed by some as less a discipline than a political program, as less interested in doing research than indoctrinating students into a particular ideology. One wonders whether some engaging in Mormon studies have such an ideological program. Looking at, the looking at the trendy topics covered in presentations on Mormon studies at past academic conferences, one may perhaps be forgiven for asking such an impolitic question. If the faith of the saints is going to be reduced to something, to what will it be reduced? If there is a political program, Latter-day Saints will want to know to what extent the ideological agenda coincides with the sustaining of the kingdom of God. Most political agendas simply do not coincide with the kingdom of God. If a book or article of Mormon studies is reductionist, it will largely reduce the faith of the saints to something with a political agenda, and that political agenda, having removed God from the kingdom of God, will be something largely alien to the community of believers. What is a student of a program in Mormon studies supposed to do with his or her education? Whenever I have run into Latter-day Saints enrolled in the Divinity program, I have asked them what they intend to do with their degree. After all, the purpose of a Divinity school is to prepare ministers of various other denominations for the ministry. Since a Latter-day Saint cannot be a minister in those denominations, what would one do with a Divinity degree? Fortunately, all of those I have talked to were getting a master's degree and have intended to use it as a stepping stone into a doctoral program, so it made some sense on the path of education. Currently, there are no Mormon Studies degrees. The degrees are in Religious Studies. But Mormon Studies could be an academic ticket to nowhere. As the chair of one Religious Studies department put it, quote, In the academic world, specialization in Mormon Studies can wreck a promising career, end quote. In the past, those who did Mormon studies got their training in other fields and pursued Mormon studies initially on the side. This is true of most of the bigger names in Mormon studies, such as Richard Bushman, American History, Terrell Givens, Comparative Literature, Arthur Henry King, Shakespeare, Leonard Arrington, Economics, John Sorensen, Anthropology, Hugh Nibley, History, Dan Peterson, Arabic, Lou Midgley, Political Philosophy, Noel Reynolds, Political Philosophy, and Jack Welch, Law. 
At one time, most of these, such as Nibley, Sorensen, Bushman, Gibbons, Peterson, Reynolds, Welch, and Midgley, were associated with the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, but the Institute's current management has decided to go in a different direction. If Mormon Studies programs house and promote students who are in Mormon Studies to promote their own anti-Mormon agenda, they will destroy their program's reputation with places that might be inclined to hire their graduates. While one might think that graduate programs would, in their own interest, not want to make their students toxic, most do not seem to care. So long as they are well paid, some academics seem not to care about the fate of their students, and thus we see that academia will not support its children at the last day. Will this cause students who recognize that something is wrong with the program to avoid it? Might the long-term result be the elimination of such an academic program? This might well be the case with Mormon Studies programs. Are the funds for Mormon Studies chairs wasted? So far, three chairs have been endowed in Mormon Studies, Utah State University, Claremont Graduate University, and the University of Virginia. Endowed chairs do not come cheap. What sort of return do the investors expect from their investment? Are the publications and the type of research done by those chairs in line with the expectations of their Latter-day Saint fund funders? Obviously, the donors are the ones who can best answer those questions, but the Latter-day Saint community has an interest in the answer to the questions. In the end, Mormon Studies is not about some small clique of intellectuals, but about the Latter-day Saints who are the subject of the study and who may well feel that the study rightfully belongs to them. Conclusion Above all, the relatively new field of Mormon studies needs humility in its practitioners. Like it or not, the real experts on Mormon studies are the general authorities. As good as some of us may be in our particular niches, we need to keep in mind that many things that we do not know and may never know. Mormon intellectuals are not particularly well positioned to give a very broad view of a worldwide church. The interests and incentives of those who engage in Mormon studies are not necessarily, and for the most part, are not at all, the interests of the kingdom. While typical Latter-day Saints might naively think that Mormon studies is a good idea, they will not be happy with most of the material that passes for Mormon studies if it follows the trend of religious studies in general, or the early output of those currently engaged in formal Mormon studies programs. Scholars who want Mormon studies to conform to the religious studies model should not be surprised, then, if Latter-day Saints have little regard for the work that they do. For most Latter-day Saints, the question is not whether serving God with all one's mind can include Mormon studies, but whether Mormon studies is actually serving God. This has been a recording of Wither Mormon Studies by John Gee, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 85 through 122, read by Scott Dunaway. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.